Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopez and today I'm here with Bryony Cole. She's the host of the Sex Tech podcast Future of Sex and she works as a researcher and strategist in future human and technology fields. She is the world's leading authority on sex tech. Since launching the podcast, Bryony has been on stages across the world, defining the direction of sex tech for governments, technology and entertainment companies. She has also been featured on shows like Viceland and Technopia, and articles in Wired, TechCrunch, The New York Times, Playboy, Mashable, Motherboard, ABC, Financial Review, Brides, Glamour, and many other global media. So, Bryony, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to everyone. Thanks. Thanks, Ricardo. I'm really excited to be on the Dissenter today. <laughs> okay, great. So, you know, I've decided to invite you because on my show, I've been exploring a lot of topics coming from, for example, evolutionary psychology. And in evolutionary psychology, people talk a lot about mating and sex. And I've already mm -hmm. explored topics about the future of sex, some emerging mm -hmm. technologies out there. Some of them are already in place. At least people can buy some incipient versions of them, let's say. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, since you've been talking uh, with different people, I mean, people who produce this kind of technology, people who use this kind of technology, and then people who like to experiment with different mm -hmm. kinds of uh, sexual niches and they have different kinds of sexual preferences and sexual fluidity. I mean, things outside of the social norm. Uh, I would like to ask you, do, do you think that nowadays in the 21st century, uh, why is it still so important to talk about sex in the public sphere? Because we would suppose that by now this would no longer be a taboo topic, right? Yeah, we'd, we'd certainly hope so. And I think, um, you know, things are still changing. We have this, this um, wherever I go in the world, really, this, this reluctance to talk about sex. It still isn't normal for people to talk about sex, especially to the people they're having it with, right? Their partners or their lovers let alone friends and family and um, we still carry a lot of shame and there's still a stigma associated with sex despite you know sex being used to sell all sorts of products you know we see it on billboards and magazines and everywhere else there's so much sex in advertising today across the world especially in the west and um, yet we never talk about it and what's why it's so important to talk about it is that we actually really get to understand um, you know, what our challenges are, you know, it's proper, it's proper education, really understanding people's identities, sexual identities, going back, you know, so, so many years, centuries ago, it's still the way we move in the world, it's still how we relate to other people. And so it is really important that we keep talking about it and keep, so I think we're having these cultural movements, whether it's the Me Too movement, 
you know, especially was quite big in the States. I don't know if it was big in Portugal around, you know, sexual harassment. Um, there's all this, um, you know, we talk about the sex recession, you know, people, young people not having sex. Why is that? We also talk about sexual identities and, um, you know, people are a lot more fluid. We look at the research today about young kids are a lot more fluid with their identities with this spectrum from homosexuality to heterosexuality. And so I think we're still discovering because it's been put in a corner and been such a taboo topic for so long, we're still discovering actually what it means to talk about sex and what our own identities mean to ourselves. It's such an important experience of our life. Mm -hmm. Yes, the sense that I get from your show is that there is basically two main elements to it. One of them is exploring human sexuality itself in its many varieties, like, for example, talking about different sexual orientations, sexual fluidity, uh, sexual niches where people try to explore the things that are probably not normative and they have to mm -hmm. do sometimes probably we could say at the margins of society unfortunately mm -hmm. still uh, but on the other hand since you're focused a lot on sex tech sex, uh, sex technology then you also explore what people think about the effects that certain kinds of technology might bring to people's lives and even society in general to people's sexual lives, romantic lives, uh, and um, I mean, beca because it's interesting, uh, I'm, just, uh, I'm just going to add this point, because every time a new piece of technology appears, historically, people tend to demonize it and to moralize it and to say that it will be the end of the world or that it will simply and some kind of uh, social institution. It happened with the romance mm. novel, it happened with comic books, it happened mm -hmm. with the radio, with the bicycle, with the car. So, uh, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's, it's interesting uh, to think about all of these things together. But starting with the mm. aspect about human sexuality, in its many varieties by doing yeah. your show uh, i mean what kinds of things have you been discovering and what have you learned about human sexuality yeah great question i think the the biggest thing i learned from the show and you know i thought i would be talking the whole time about robots and futuristic sci-fi scenarios and certainly we talk about that but i think you got to the core of the truth of what I really talk about when I talk about the future of sex or sex tech is actually about human behaviors and understanding you know what really is true for all of us you know we all most majority of us on planet earth arrived unless we went through IVF you know our parents went through IVF or something we arrived from someone having sex so it is such a core part of us and what I learned through doing the podcast and interviewing technologists and scientists and educators and people that you know seem to the most bedrooms of all is really that although we think about technology as this fascinating thing or you know for a lot of people the same thing that that fear of replacing us or it being the end of the world scenarios you know robots are going to replace everyone and we're all going to have robot girlfriends and boyfriends the the thing i learned the most about human sexuality was from the listeners and the people that listened and the questions they asked me 
And the, there was one question that people kept asking that I thought in different ways. And I thought, this is so interesting. I'm not a sex therapist. I'm a podcaster. I'm a researcher, but I don't have this answer. But people were so concerned with whether or not they were normal. So it had nothing to do with technology or anything. People just wanted to know, I have this experience. Am I normal? I have these fantasies. Am I normal? I do this thing. Am I normal? And in you know various different words. But we're all so concerned with just being normal, right? Like there's an idea of normal. And if you know, interview this Dr. Tammy Nelson in the podcast, he says, normal, what's normal? There's no normal. Normal is a setting on a washing machine. It's not a setting for human sexuality. And so as I did more and more of the interviews, I realized, wow, there's, there's so many things I didn't know, right? There's, there's, there's this whole world out there and people have so many different proclivities. And I think the real hope for the future of sex when we talk about the future is just having a society that's a little less um, judgmental and being more open and, and people understanding it's okay. And yeah, whatever you're doing is normal. So it was a very human sort of insight at the end. And of course, I learned all about these technologies. And I think the only other sort of key surprise for me was how much technology has already changed the way we date and we fall in love. Um, you know, we, we know this with dating apps, but how we're uh, using technology that's not even intended to sex or for dating and we're subverting it and using it um, for all sorts of different things. So a recent example for me is talking to young teenagers about the use of technology and their sexual experiences and how does this, these two come together and um, young kids talking about losing their FaceTime virginity. I said, well, what is this? And they said, oh, this is, you know, kind of like when you first, you know, have a first kiss with someone except it's through technology. Um, and essentially, yeah, like, you know, losing their FaceTime virginity, so um, having sex with someone over FaceTime or sexting. And so these sorts of technologies have crept in and, you know, we use them in our day-to-day -day lives or our work lives, but... We're also, we're humans, right? We use it for other things. We use it for sex. We use it for unintended consequences of all these technologies. And um, that's surprising to me is it's not sex tech is, you know, technology designed for enhancing intimacy and sex. But what technologies are we using that weren't even designed for that? Yeah. And still talking about society, isn't it unfortunate that there are many sexual behaviors where people are not harming others at all? I mean, it's just something outside of the norm that they really sometimes have to uh, build their own uh, niche societies, let's say, build their own niche groups and create their own places and even sometimes companies, as you talk about in the show, where they can explore freely their sexual proclivities because society in general just wants to, I don't know, moralize or condemn in mm -hmm. some way. I, I mean, this is a ridiculous example, but maybe there are even people that think that if we are to consider certain types of sexual behavior normal, then they will spread across society and then their own sexual orientation or preferences 
will be undermined because in a way they will no longer be able to find some partner to fulfill them with like for example when people when conservative people say that um, if suddenly uh, gay people become norm normal or we mm. accept them as normal then mm. i mean everyone will want to be gay and the traditional yeah. family will end and heterosexuals will have a hard time i mean there are all of those mm. sorts of ridiculous ideas out there but it's unfortunate, I don't know if you agree, but I hope so, that at the same time people who have uh, sexual preferences that they perform with people that consent to them have to look out, uh, have to try to find places that are um, almost outside of society, I've even called them marginal uh, because mm -hmm. of that. Yeah, and you know, the great thing I think about technology and that, you know, we could go back to the start of the internet and there's like community forums, right? Yeah. The great thing is people could find each other then. Whereas if you talk to people that, you know, grew up pre-internet and, you know, were having these feelings, whether it was homosexual feelings, maybe, as I've learned um, doing sex therapy course, maybe you were attracted to balloons, which is also a thing to be attracted to balloons. Now, if you grew up in a small town and you were decided you were attracted to balloons and you didn't know why, but this is your sexual proclivity, your fetish, um, you would you would also feel like a freak. Obviously, it's something you don't want to disclose to people, but you wouldn't have anyone else that could support you. But now, with the internet, there's whole forums um, of people that are attracted to balloons. Now, it could be any other object. But you can go and find balloon parties and, you know, there's this incredible story that I watched when doing sex therapy training of this guy that was, you know, was able to catch a bus into New York City and go to a balloon party. Um, so thanks to the community he found on the internet. So I think in some ways I'm like, you know what, the community aspect of the internet, the connection aspect has actually been really great for people that feel like sexual minorities on the, on the outside. I think if we look at like the rise of, um, you know, vocal people in the trans community or in the homosexual community or different sexual orientations and identities that then, um, you know, the majority of the mainstream, it's been really incredible um, that the internet has sort of facilitated those connections, that support. Um, of course, it also always goes the opposite way and there's plenty of trolls online and people that aren't doing great things as well online. And we can look to the darker side of the internet where things like pedophilia have, you know, grown because of the internet. So it's a really tricky, you know, there's no like black and white uh, answer here because it's just, it's just opened us up to connect even more in all these different ways, sexually as well as socially. Um, yeah, it's a shame if we don't embrace people's identities and they have to still keep them Mm -hmm. behind closed doors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's also interesting because I was just thinking that even when it comes to things like uh, psychiatric diagnosis, for example, we know mm. that it, it always have had a cultural element to it. So, for example, mm. there was a time where homosexuality was considered a mental disease. And so mm. nowadays I think about things like 
I don't know, being queer, being transsexual, being sexually fluid in some way, um, I don't know, uh, liking to experimenting with some kind of kink or BDSM mm -hmm, mm -hmm, or things mm -hmm. like that. And uh, it seems pretty easy to me for society just to condemn those types of behaviors and say that those are deviant sexual behaviors and then down the line they could be turned into mental disorders or could be studied mm. as such when, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, uh, again, I would like to stress and ask you if you really agree mm. that what matters here at the end of the day is if people are getting pleasure from what they're doing and with consensual partners. I mean, is, it, mm. is, is there really something more that matters there apart from that? I think, I think you've, you've uh, said it perfectly. I think as long as you're not hurting anyone else, why couldn't you, you know, have consensual sex or sex with yourself or it might be you know, something else? But yeah, the, the whole goal is pleasure, but pleasure and um, different orientations very threatening to society and we see this you know the classic thing homosexuality threatening this classic makeup of the family and the way that we structured societies we structured the land the way it made sense and you know we were in the agricultural age to divide up the land into families that would procreate and sex has been so tied to procreation for so long that different orientations outside the heterosexual um, circle feel very threatening um, to yeah, governments, to lawmakers, because they, they, in their minds, threaten the this you know idea of how society will continue. But you know today that's not true. And the miracle of science, we can you know we're seeing fertility changing in the way parental structures and family structures are changing anyway. Thank goodness. But of course, this is very localized, right? In every different country, you know, in Australia, we only legalize gay marriage. 18 months ago, so recently, kind of shocking to me that I grew up in a society where gay marriage wasn't legal um, because I spent so much of my time you know, in, in this world talking to people that it is. And if I think about a recent experience, I went to Thailand and not so much to do with orientation, but sex tech is that they've banned the sale of sex toys. And so there's you know, made it very shameful for people to even experiment or understand their bodies or try something. Um, by making sex toy possession illegal. Um, there are also still some states in the US that are the same. So, you know, there's, in many ways, we try and encroach on people's own desires, fantasies, proclivities, their orientation by imposing these ideas and these social structures upon them that really are for what? Probably for power and control other than anything else. Certainly not for our pleasure. Yeah. So, uh, certainly you can't speak about all countries, but do you think that uh, in general in the West, when it comes to sex education at school or elsewhere, that kids are really being well served? Or, uh, and I'm asking you this also because I then want to connect it with other thing that is, if mm. kids are not 
getting their proper sex education at school or whatever, then I guess mm. we already know where they are getting it, right? right. But we can yeah. talk about it, about it yeah. later. Yeah, so the state of sex education in the West is very poor at the moment. It's still very much stuck in the 1950s idea of, you know, really showing people anatomical structures of the penis and the vagina or explaining um, really the mechanics of sex rather than the things that make sex great. You know, we talked a little bit about consent, such an important and vital part of sex, as well as orientation knowing the spectrum, like the Kinsey scale, you know, zero to six, homosexuality to heterosexuality, knowing that that sexuality is a, a spectrum so it can change over time and maybe you're just a little bit of this and a little bit of that and the makeup, these things that make sex so great and should be part of education as a child are just completely missing. And then, you know, going even further to talking more about relationships, you certainly don't have much sec uh, education around relationships and empathy and communication and listening in schools and that sort of social intelligence which is also so relevant to our sexual intelligence so i i would say for the most part wherever i go in the world people would tell me they had the worst sex education it was just putting a condom on a banana which or you know watching an animal documentary nothing to do with this human experience and so yes of course what you're alluding to if you don't have a good sex education, the young kid and you want to learn about sex and you see it everywhere, right? You see it in all these advertisements, film, you know, movies. Where do you go to learn about sex? You have this. <laughs> you have a smartphone, which is essentially, you know, usually um, a pawn in your pocket. You know, and it's much quicker to access today than ever before. Um, and to access a number of porn sites and just like basically 30% of the internet, right, is pornography. And there is no way to get around that. You know, parents will come to me and say, oh, we put locks on the kids' phones. Well, kids are really smart and if you've got this, you're a lock on your phone, maybe you'll go to your friend's phone or maybe you'll go around to someone's house and, you know, it's usually either a sibling or a friend that shows you your first pornography and you know the research says the average age is eight or nine years old and um and so then for the majority of kids these days porn is the default sex education in the absence of anything that's happening at school mm -hmm. yeah uh, i don't know if this resonates with you in any way but recently i interviewed on the podcast an evolutionary psychologist from Cyprus, Menelaus Apostolo, and we talked a little bit about a, a particular thing that is very interesting and I guess that even people in the sex business don't always think about. That is, uh, he told me how during the vast majority of our history, even our evolutionary history, we didn't really add to have really good uh, mating social skills because most of our um, marriages, for example, were arranged. And so, I mean, we didn't have to acquire those sorts of skills. I mean, how to court other people, for example, women, uh, how to approach mm -hmm. them, how to talk with them and, and so on and so forth. 
And so, I, I mean, it's interesting because with sex education nowadays and you talked about some examples like teach, teaching children and adolescents and so on, um, how to establish relationships, how to talk with one another, mm. how to deal with problems and so on. I mean, mm. I was just wondering if this bit of information that I just gave you from that interview, if that would in any way resonate with what we, we you were talking about and the, this kind of sex education that you were thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, the sad thing is it's getting even worse. So, yes, in arranged marriages, there's this absence of courtship or just even knowing how to, you know, communicate. And now today we... We don't even really need to know how to look each other in the eye or talk to each other like we are um, looking at reading body language and understanding like you know emotions through through body language because we have again the phone right and so so many relationships today are mediated through screens so we have we can conduct these entire relationships through screens which doesn't even require that much right requires us to learn how to type um, but the, the challenge I think we're facing today is when that relationship moves beyond the screen how do we relate to each other and you know I think that's where I get more concerned for the younger generation where today we see in universities in the US at the moment the, they have courses in sort of this social you know psychology but some of the homework is go and ask someone out on a date in person you know like well, i don't know how to do that because and they get to college and they still never had uh, the chance to ask someone out on a date in person and that's still it's very confronting so i think those sort of emotional and social intelligence skills are really lacking and we need to reincorporate them and reintroduce them a lot earlier now that kids don't even have to look you in the eye and um when they're talking to you the other thing is i think that is lacking and this is sort of divergent from sex but if we look at the amount of social media we consume every day and how much information is coming at us as as when i grew up i learned critical thinking skills right because we had books to read and we had text to analyze and college papers and these sorts of things but today because so much of the world has been changed you know we live in this fake news society but the kids don't really have the critical thinking skills they need to decipher um, and understand, like, what's true, what's not, what's real, what do I know about this world? And so they're growing up in this um, deluge of social media and things where they don't get to read, sit down and read books as much. Certainly the, the average school kid doesn't. And so the implication of that is relationships really suffer too. Like if you can't hold space for someone, you can't have a mature adult relationship because you haven't developed critical thinking skills and emotional and social intelligence. So I'm scared. That's what I'm scared about. Forget the robot. Forget the sex. Forget about relationships, I think, is the thing we really need to remember that this is so important and so key to our happiness, right? Is people want to connect. People want to be loved. Sex is a fun part of that, but um, we really need to, to learn what makes us so special about being human. And what's so special about being human is the right side of our brain, our creativity, our imagination, our sense of mystery, all these skills that robots will never do, but make sex really great, make relationships really great, and 
think we should focus a lot more on that creativity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is probably one of the negative consequences or aspects of technology, at least the one that we're talking about now. Uh, but I, I guess that another interesting aspect is not only how it might affect our social skills, our, our social aptitude in this case, but also the new social domain where people, or in this case children and adolescents, have to deal with one another, that is the virtual world, social media mm -hmm. and so on, because there there is an entire new array of things that they have to know how to deal with, like for example, revenge porn, digital abuse, mm -hmm. being mm -hmm. stalked online and things like that, so I mean, mm -hmm. we have this the real let's call it social domain and then you have another layer of social of sociality that nowadays particularly the younger generations have to deal with right yes yes absolutely this is just a, it's almost like the new normal part of life right like it, it, we used to have this idea of a second self a second self that lived online and we really lived here but today there's no separation, right? We live online as much as we live offline. In fact, some people live more online than they live offline. Mm -hmm. And so part of the part of the sort of challenges that come with that is revenge porn, cyberbullying is a huge problem, and we don't have the laws to govern it. So there's always this cultural lag, right? Where a technology is introduced, humans use it in different ways, we subvert it, we start using it for sexting, and then you know somebody comes along and you know, put, takes those images and reuses them in, in an abusive way. And the law, they, they take ages, you know, legal systems, government systems, they take far too long to catch up and they need to be faster. But the rate of innovation in technology is still exponential. So we're always playing this game of catch up. So right now, I think what's interesting and is often in the mainstream media is these revenge porn laws that are being formed at the moment that are ways of coping with it. I think another really important way of coping with whether it's revenge porn, cyberbullying, online predators is again coming back to education. And we need to be providing not only the kids with better education around these digital literacy skills and safety, but also the parents. And I think it's important, you know, again, people get so fearful and they think, oh my gosh, you know, this is going to be terrible and isn't technology bad. But we need to be obviously teaching about safety and privacy and, um, you know, understanding the implications of all this, so sharing images or, you know, sexting with someone. But we also need to, um, I think, come to terms with participation. Young people want to engage in media. They want to engage in social media. That's how they connect with their friends. They're almost a new type of human, I would argue. And so I think in part of this education is really taking a really proactive approach and a really sort of empowering, engaging approach and understanding, listen, people are going to do this. People already do this. People already sexed or are bullied online. So how, how can we empower people rather than just locking their phones or, you know, burning the books, whatever it is? So um, that's like a, a hope for the future, I think, is when we see these education models, how they really bring very real and realistic, something that's sadly missing in sex education today is like there's no reality there of like what's actually happening. 
So I hope that new models will have the protection stuff, the provision and the participation and the engagement. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, I think it does. And I mean, is it then that the approach that you have to new emergent sex technology is not really that it by itself is good or bad? I mean, it is kind of mm. neutral, but then what really matters is how people use it, how people deal with it, how people learn to interact with one another through it. I mean, those are yeah. the types of things that really matter here. Also, because it's not that we're really going to avoid or prevent this technology from being developed and bought and used in all sorts mm -hmm. of ways. I mean, that mm -hmm. simply is not going to happen, right? Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah, there's, we're not, there's no going backwards, right? There's no reverse button out of here. We're in this situation already. The future of sex has already arrived. And yeah, being accepting of that and, and understanding, yeah, people are already using this. The, the future's already here. Yeah. And uh, earlier in the interview, we've already alluded to this, but it seems, at least according to uh, recent data, that millennials and probably Generation Z as well, or Z, I don't know how you pronounce the letter there, but they are having less sex than previous generations. Uh, how do you look at that? Do you think that that by itself is really a bad thing or that it um, points us to other kinds of problems or not? Look, I think that if we think about they're having less sex, if, if that research is true, I mean, there's certainly um, some interesting ideas about that, whether or not that research is accurate or whether it's for a certain subset of the population, perhaps. But I think if we say, okay, we accept that young people are having less sex, what sort of sex are we talking about? I think the assumption is we're talking about penetrative sex, you know, or sex in your life. What are young people doing a lot of? Sexing. And probably having FaceTime sex and, you know, losing their FaceTime virginity. So perhaps they're expressing their sexuality in very different ways because they have these different tools available to them now. They're certainly consuming a lot more sex um, online, you know. So I think there's, there's differences that perhaps when we didn't have access to that, you know, previous generations, we had sex a lot sooner. I think there's also a lot more um, sort of, you know, people would say scare tactics about sex that are, you know, people are scared to have sex in person, just like they're scared to have a relationship in person. There's an argument for that. And then there's some, you know, critics that argue about that research is actually young people are having a lot of sex. We just don't know about it, you know. And, and if we look at this study that says this is sex recession, um, a, a lot of the data will say that, that the people having the least sex in that group were college-age women, white women. The people having the most sex and were having plenty of sex were non-college-educated people, men of colour. So, you know, there's so many ways I think we could split it that it's such a big assumption. But I would go on anecdotes of how I talk to kids then. I'd say certainly kids are being sexual. Whether or not they're actually having sex with each other, maybe not, maybe less. But they're certainly very sexual, you know. And you look at those, you know, kids on YouTube or funny videos and you're like, 
why is that three-year-old thrusting like Beyonce, you know, in front of a video? Kids are developing a lot sooner and becoming more sexually aware a lot sooner, whether that's in porn or mainstream media. So, yeah, perhaps they're having, I don't know if they're having more or less sex, but I think they're more sexual than, than previous generations. And we can't, again, I think we can't stop. Yeah, and that bit about developing sooner, I mean, uh, there's this question about pornography and its effects. So the, mm. there are several layers here that we can explore, and I hope that we can go at least through two or three qu questions related to it. So mm. the first one, of course, is the effects or lack thereof that pornography might have on the minds of people who use or abuse it, whatever their age. So, for example, there are studies, there are contradictory studies. Some of them point toward mm -hmm. pornography, predisposing people toward more sexual violence. Others that say the opposite. Others mm. that say that the results are mixed and we can't really mm -hmm. arrive at any concrete conclusion. Mm. Uh, but, but, I mean, if you're trying to at least establish a correlation, uh, it seems to me that as uh, the consumption of pornography went up, at least across the world or uh, in the Western world, at least where we have better data and the data that we analyze the most, uh, sexual crime and even all type of crime has been, go has been going down. So at least mm. the, that type of correlation we don't get there. But on the other mm. hand, it could be having other sorts of uh, psychological effects yeah. that might be negative even in how people, particularly young people, establish relationships with one another or not. So uh, mm. what do you have to say about that? Yeah, I think it's really important to, to you know, and this is what's lacking from the research is the context of every person that's viewed that pornography, how educated are they? So do they know that porn is not real life sex? And I think this is sort of the crux of the problem for, for when it manifests into crimes or violence or bad relationships is, do we know that the porn we see is actually like, it's like, you know, fast food, it's like McDonald's, it's like not the food you would have every day, right? So, yeah, and the real sex looks very different. And so, when we take that plus we look at what is it, what are they actually viewing and at what age, so at what age their brains develop. I think it's certainly um, alarming if I talk to kids and they say the first time that they watched pornography was three years old. And I say, well, how can you remember it was three years old? Oh, I was, you know, playing a video game and with my brother and he showed me and this is what it looked like. I think, wow, you know, that that's a human that's going to, probably not have real life sex for 10 to 15 years. And so how does that compounding effect of watching porn for a decade or over a decade before you have sex impact your sex life? That's the sort of um, research we need that we don't have right now. But I think we can, we can think just like anything we consume as our brains develop, just like media, 
um, it certainly plays a part in how we view the world because our brains are, are forming and we're shaping our own views about the world. So I think we can't say it doesn't have any impact, but we need to think about, does that person know that that's a movie, not real life sex? How old are they? How formed are their brains? And how informed are they about sex? And they're sort of the things that I think um, should be the focus of the research and looking at what can we do. And then, you know, the, the interesting thing is when we talk about porn, what are we really talking about? Because there is so many different categories of porn. There's so many different sort of qualities of porn today. There's obviously free sites, but there's also what we would call ethical pornographers where everyone has consent and, you know, they, I've interviewed some of the ethical pornographers on Future of Sex and they talk about the production being, you know, all-female crews, everyone being consensual, being paid well and that being an ethical experience and very cinematic and then there's other companies like um, Make Love Not Porn, which is seen as a counterpoint to pornography, which is real-world people having real-world sex and that's, you know, a lot of real bodies and people submit their own their own videos and they have to be consensual as well as creative and you know ideally they're showing safe sex so yes of course whatever we consume whether it's books or media videos impacts the way that we see the world and certainly i believe it impacts the way we see the world as young people and consistently seeing that over time so i don't know where i was going with that other than agreeing with you i think <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just thinking. I remember that you also talked with one feminist porn producer, right? I guess that her name is Erica Lust, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So there, there's Lust. also that type of thing nowadays. I don't know how successful right. it is because it is right. targeted mostly at women, right? Yeah. So I think you wouldn't. This is the, the, I guess, the issue here is that would be great to show that sort of um, video in school, I think, for teenagers. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe a radical idea, but would kind of give a different alternative view of what's available to people. It's still erotic content. Um, but, yeah, she's a feminist pornographer or ethical pornographer. And some of her projects are really interesting. She invites people, everyday people, to submit their ideas, submit their fantasies, and then she goes and makes the film. So it has this very sort of, you know, real-world touch to it, but they're very cinematic, and I think is a great tool for sex education. In fact, I would argue that we should be showing porn as part of sex education to have a constructive conversation with kids about it. Otherwise, they're watching it behind closed doors with their friends, by themselves, and not really having this grounding in well, what is pornography, what does it mean, and, and using it perhaps as a tool to understand your own sexuality. I mean, certainly it, it can be used in a positive sense to look at other people's bodies, to look at what other orientations might be, to look at like these, these sorts of arguments about porn. We can also say there's many positive to having that content available to people so long as you know, they have the education or they, the intention of using it in a way that's going to positively enhance their own life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I guess that uh, another question that I had for you about pornography has to do not with the consumers, but with the people that perform it and i mean and mm -hmm. perhaps some of the effects that it might have on their uh, 
uh, elf, mental elf, I don't know, because I, I mean, there, there are, this is a very, very complicated subject. Because, for example, I remember that back uh, in late 2017, if I'm not mistaken, there was a very famous a porn actress, August Ames, who died because she hanged herself. Mm. She, she suffered from depre depression. And then mm. um, there was a company that proposed her uh, making a scene with a guy that was usually from the gay industry. And it seems that in the gay industry, the standards for security, let's say, in terms of getting blood samples to analyze and to see if they have some uh, STDs or something like that, uh, are lower than the standards for the heterosexual porn industry. And so she said that she wouldn't do it for security issues and so on and so forth. And she was severely bullied uh, on Twitter. And then mm -hmm. because she already suffered previously from depression, she basically took her own life so uh, and I mean th this is just one example but mm -hmm. then but then you go and look for example you watch documentaries about porn stars some of them that are already retired and for example I've already had some conversations even though not for the show with some prostitutes for example also in germany because in german in germany people are much more open about this sort of thing and prostitution is legal and so on and i mean people are not embarrassed to talk mm -hmm. about those kinds of things and uh, I, I mean there are all sorts of people there are people that deal well with it there are people that for example seem to me that they are very socio-sexual that is that they like to have sex with people they don't feel intimately attached to or they don't have a sort of an emotional connection they just love to have sex as much as they can mm -hmm. even women we tend to associate that with men but <clears throat> even mm -hmm. some women and then they are very extroverted and they are very emotionally stable let's say and so i i mean i'm trying to connect these more positive mm -hmm. side of things with sex positive feminism because there are feminists that are not against pornography, nor prostitution, nor any of those types of paid sexual activities for, in mm -hmm. that case, for women. But uh, mm -hmm. on, on the other hand, we also know that there are people that don't deal well with it. And then mm -hmm. there are issues related sometimes to uh, trafficking and things like that so uh, human trafficking so uh, I, I mean do you have any sort of idea mm -hmm. about that kind of thing mm. i mean it, as you said before it's such a complicated and layered issue you know it's so complex and so different in so many ways you know and mental health and it just general health is so important and we can see in so many different industries, you know, being unsavory behavior 
whether it's in the tech industry, in the porn industry, and this is not to make light of all this situation. And certainly there are some really nasty practices, I think, in this you know, sex industry that you're talking about in the porn industry. I don't have the full you know, body of knowledge around that to be able to talk, and I wouldn't feel right to be talking on behalf of that community, but certainly to say, like, yeah, this this is a huge problem out in the world that um, you know, and and you know, and and there are certainly sex workers that feel really empowered by doing the work that they do, that want acknowledgement that this is work they do work, um, and are not coming from a place of desperation in terms of making money. They're coming from a place of empowerment. But it's such a wow, such a complex, layered issue, and I think. It, the problem I think is people don't want to understand it. They want to just either say it's good or it's bad and put these blanket statements on it. But as you pointed out, there's just there's so many different ways, and it really also depends. You know, is it is it happening in what continent? You know, and what legality and like this. You know, is someone trying to get out of a really bad situation? Um, there's so many layers that I, I couldn't even do it justice. Yeah. Yeah, I tried to mention some of them, but it's a really <laughs> wide and nuanced topic, I guess. And pro probably we would have to deal it in on a case by case basis or something like mm -hmm. that. So, uh, okay, so now getting more specifically into some kinds of technology. What do you think about sex robots and sex dolls? Because when people think about these and because over time they are becoming more and more human-like, then there are people that are raising questions about, okay, so if they resemble a human that much, what kind of relationship will people establish with that being or whatever you want to call it mm -hmm. uh, and if even some people will try to replace real relationships mm -hmm. relationships with sex robots and what they will lose by doing that um so let's go back to your question about will people eventually you know have fully replaced relationships and gone to um, yeah gone to technology instead of humans and I think you know that was the the point you ended on and I think the the answer is that this is already happening so you know we we see these examples not only in the U.S. but in Japan with Gatebox um, which I'm not sh sure you're familiar with or your audience is familiar with. Um, Gatebox, which is a small cartoon girl that's in a glass cylinder. So you can't actually touch her, have sex with her, which is interesting, I think, because now we've moved away from the physical side of intimacy and they're talking about emotional intimacy. Gatebox is this cartoon girl that texts you, that can talk to you, that controls the lights and the temperature in your home, but she also sends you emotional text messages and has been so popular, she's sold out. Um, every time she's released in Japan, she's sold out within a week and they now have 3,700 marriage certificates to Gatebox. So, yes, people are, uh, you know, entirely replacing, um, you know, the concept of a wife by marrying technology. Now, what does that mean? And is that only these, you know, conditions in this country where 
cultural conditions and you know the, the society has made it easier or more acceptable to marry technology. That's still very new, but I think we can point to some examples. So in Japan, we have that. In the US, it's more so seen as sort of a fetish, although we have people that have entirely said, I'm a robosexual, I'm attracted to robots, that's my sexuality, just like the person that was attracted to balloons before, or maybe someone that's attracted to, I don't know, lamps. Um, they've decided not and attracted to technology. And there's a great case in Paris, actually, of a woman that um, had 3D printed her own robot boyfriend and um, had been proposed to him. So there are people that really do feel that emotional, intimate connection with a robot. Um, and I think that's distinct from the dolls. So, so often when we're talking about sex robots, we're just really talking about the dolls, right? That's there's not that much technology in them. They're these sex dolls and they're really, they are just used as a physical act um, yeah. rather than the connection. And what we're seeing now is very clunky technology. I don't know if you've seen any of this or if you look it up. It's still kind of, it's not quite there yet where you would think, oh, like this robot can definitely make me a sandwich and, you know, ask me about, you know, the most exciting memory I have five years old or something. So that intimacy, that connection is not quite there. But I, I don't think it will be far off. And I think that's what's interesting is that intimacy and that intimate connection with that artificial intelligence is trying so hard to replicate right now. That may come first before the actual mechanics of these robots do, where they can move their limbs and, you know, they can, you know, move around right now they kind of just sit there right and they're very heavy so it's not very popular for women to use but i think what will be more interesting is the technology that's being developed whether that's in chatbots or in these you know holograms where we're seeing marriages um that people are opting to engage with that more and then i think well you know and everyone's like i wouldn't do that oh that's not me that would never be me and we think well, what's your own relationship to your smartphone? Do you go anywhere without it, you know, or do you feel married to your to your phone? And so in many ways, I think we think we're far away from it or we'd never do that, but we spend so much time with our phone. Who else do we spend that much time with? <laughs> that. Maybe I'm just talking to myself. <laughs> right. I mean, this is perhaps a bit controversial, but... Um... As the AI systems behind the sex robots uh, improve and get better and better and they are able to mimic more and more uh, humans, let's say, and they are able to uh, move in a more fluid way and talk mm. in, in a more realistic way and even uh, when their facial expressions and things like that are more realistic, I mean, we might get into a point where we might have to start asking what are the kinds of beings that we are interacting with and establishing relationships with, right? Because, I mean, if we are to be really crude, a bit crude here about how we talk about our own human relationships, it's still the case that uh, the way we know other people is by the interactions we have with them. And they might be mm -hmm. honest 
or dishonest, right? And maybe sometimes in relationships, people mm. hurt, hurt one another because they are not honest. They don't say what they want. They shit on their partners and so on. So, I mean, if, if robots get into a stage of development that they really, really closely resemble a human and act like, like a human and talk like a human, uh, I mean, maybe some people will have a point in preferring a robot, particularly if they have gone through very painful uh, human mm -hmm. relationships or something like that. Do you, do you understand what, what I'm saying? I mean, it's a bit controversial, but... Yeah, I understand and I agree with you. You know, I see these cases of like the arguments for therapy, for therapeutic use for people with PTSD, um, for people with Alzheimer's, you know, we're already um, caring for robots. They don't have to be humans. It could be Paro, the fairy seal, used in nursing homes or, you know, there's there's definitely chatbots that exist, you know, of, um, I'm forgetting the recall of the name, but, um, you know, the chatbot of the, the guy that was deceased and his best friend took 10 years of text messages um, that they had to share together and then text messages from his parents and from other friends and built this chatbot. So he lived on long, long after he's passed away. And so, yeah, we have to question, well, what, what are these relationships that we're forming with people? I think it's very real. Again, I think this is already happening today. It's not, in my world, it's not that radical. You know, I think I see it so much. I think, wow, this is, this is like, this is the new normal. Um, but we're just waiting for people to catch up. But yeah, the, the thing I like to stress is along the way is, how are we also developing ourselves? We're developing technology at such a rate, but how are we developing ourselves, our self-awareness, our understanding of our psyche, not only our sexual orientation and our preferences, but also just an awareness of like how we move in the world and what we want and who we are and all this like critical thinking about, you know, basically consciousness, right? Um, because these, this technology is also becoming conscious at the same time. So, I think we can't lose that. We can't lose these characteristics that make us so human, our intuition, things that are quite nebulous, our, our creativity. These, these are the areas I think we should focus on as humans as we develop technology to become more aware. And yeah, then, you, then you're fully self-aware. If you're choosing a technology to marry, then that's a, that's a choice you make that's fully aware or you're choosing you know, a human partner. Yeah. Okay, so uh, let me ask you now about this new kind of technology, tele-dildonics, because this, I guess, al allows for new kinds of sexual experiences, even at distance. So it, mm -hmm. might, it, it might have also an impact uh, on relationships, or, uh, on, on people that have relationships at distance, for example. Mm. I, I mean, mm. they, they can have some sort of a more direct, even though it's not really direct, sexual mm. relationship with one another with this piece of technology. So yeah. what, what is it about, really? Yeah, so te teledildonics is a super connected sex toy. So usually via Wi-Fi or a Bluetooth connection, you would have a vibrator or a masturbator, whatever you like using, connected to another person wherever they are in the world, so long as they have Wi-Fi or Bluetooth. 
Um, quite often now we're seeing these are paired with not only apps, but virtual reality headsets, or in some cases, if you're not um, pairing to another person, you can be connected to content, pornography, or if you're pairing to another person that's not necessarily a lover that you're in relationship with, but maybe it's a cam girl or a cam guy. You know, so it's used in all these different contexts. I think what's really interesting is is looking at where that's evolving into not only just the, the genitals, but also things like the Kissinger. So that's used to transmit kisses on long distances oh. over Wi-Fi, and it's actually an attachment that goes on your phone and looks like a pair of like lips that are fitted with sensors and you kiss it and the other person on the other end is kissing their phone and it's meant to transmit that sense of touch so you know haptic technology and the sense of touch i think is getting better and better we have to see haptic suits or gloves or things that will be able to transmit those feelings um beyond just one specific area um, but, but I mean, is, is it already customizable? I mean, can you create a sort of a replica of your lover's <laughs> lips <laughs> to put on your phone or something like so that? So they claim, I think it's more of like a moldable, you know, set and it's the sensors transmit how they kiss. But okay. it's certainly, it looks kind of complicated. And what I found interesting about the marketing in, in that sort of those haptic devices, the Kissinger in particular was, yes, um, one third of their market is long distance relationships. The other third is um, celebrities. So you can imagine what would it be like to kiss a celebrity, use the Kissinger. And then the other part was for families. So for family, you know, Christmas time, you can't be with your grandparents, you know, transmitting that um, sense of touch and sense of being there through these sex tech devices is very interesting for our future. Yeah, 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 that's, that's really amazing. So let me just ask you one last question. Uh, sure. I mean, we've been talking about new pieces of technology, about how we deal with sex nowadays, sex education, I mean, lots of things. But what about new relationship styles like polyamory? Mm. I, I mean, because it's getting uh, more and more i'm not sure uh, i'm not sure if it's becoming some sort of a trend or not mm. but at least it's getting more and more attention in the media for example so i mean have you already talked with anyone that has a polyamorous mm. relationship and how they deal with it and do you think that in the future this could become a trend taking into account the fact that we as humans have these things like jealousy and others that mm -hmm. are a bit complicated mm -hmm. to, de to deal with right yeah well it certainly does feel like it's becoming more mainstream we're hearing it more and more terms like polyamory and these alternative relationship structures whether or not that you know or more people are trying it, we don't know yet. But it certainly feels that way because the media report on it so often. Um, and, you know, we have the, the technology response where we have apps for these specific sort of orientations or relationship styles. So we have things like what used to be called Trinda is now called Field, S-E-E-L-D. And that's, um, you know, couples that go on there and they want to find another partner. They want to be in a triad, you know, and have 
a significant other or maybe they just want to try it. Um, so I think that's a good signal to say, yes, these relationship styles are becoming more and more popular. People are learning more about it. And again, I think it goes back to education. You know, the same thing could be said for something like BDSM and we have mainstream movies in Hollywood like um, Fifty Shades of Grey that are introducing people to these lifestyles. So I think people are becoming more and more aware of them and part of that is um, learning about how to deal with these human behaviours like compersion, you know, not feeling jealous, feeling joy for that person, that significant other that's with someone else and these new styles. So I think it's totally possible if you're that way inclined and there's certainly... It, it research to say, you know, maybe, or arguments to say, maybe you are meant to be polyamorous, you as a person and an individual, but this person isn't. And really, I think this is the wonderful thing about learning about our sexuality is it changes over time. It's never fixed, just like it's never one setting, it's never normal. It's never fixed and you may want to be monogamous for five years and then try out polyamory for the next 30 years and it's really up to you the way you create your own lifestyle and the internet has made it so much more accessible to find the people and also learn more about how you deal with these you know, new relationship structures. If we look at the statistics around divorce and like traditional structures that we thought we were going to stay, stay forever, certainly that's not happening. More and more people are getting divorced. There's a 50% divorce rate um, in most parts of the West and we're seeing people staying single for longer as well. There's more, there's now more single women in the US than there are married women. Um, and so people are staying single for longer. They're not getting married as young. They're not having children as young. So society is changing and it feels like it's changing a lot faster now because technology is sort of taking us there, right? Technology is taking us on the journey, of course, up to us how we decide to carry on. But I think it's opening people up to these alternative ideas and access to the education. Maybe governments and lawmakers and the rest of society will slowly uh, follow along. Yeah. And there are two things that I get from polyamorous people or couples or whatever that is to be polyamorous, as they say, or, at, or as most of them say, is not to be all the time in multiple relationships. I mean, you can go through a period of time where you are monogamous because you mm -hmm. only love one person, but mm -hmm. all the time you are open to the possibility of including more than one person mm -hmm. in your relationship mm -hmm. or the ones with whom you establish relationships. And then, on the other hand, polyamory probably is not for everyone, right? Yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And, you know, it just, it really depends on how you feel. I don't think anyone should ever be pushed into any lifestyle that they don't want or act that they don't want. But um, the great thing is if you're curious, there's so many resources and people out there on the internet that you can find more about it. Yeah. Okay, so Bryony, we've already, we've already covered a lot of topics here. It was <laughs> a very interesting conversation. Um, would you, before we go, would you like to plug in some publicity to your podcast and to other platforms where people can find you on the internet? Great, yeah, well, 
Future of Sex is, is my home. So futureofsex.org is the website. And then if you want to listen to the podcast, anywhere you listen to the podcast, your podcast, Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, whatever, um, just look up Future of Sex and you'll find me. Okay, great. That's so it. I will be leaving links to it and to other platforms on the description box of the interview, both for the uh, listeners and the viewers. And Bryony, right. thank you a lot again for taking the time to come on the show. And I really love the Thanks. conversation and I hope to have you another time somewhere right. in the future on the show. So I look forward to it. Thanks so much, Ricardo. Thanks for taking the time with me. Hello everybody, thank you for watching this interview until the end. As you might have noticed, I've been putting out regular interviews with leading intellectuals from around the world. And so, to keep the channel sustainable, I would really like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and to consider making a pledge there. Otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. You can also support me via PayPal. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my patrons Karen Litzke, Anne Blanchett, Pereira Larsen, Lau Guerrero, Chantal Gilinas, Francis Ford, Hans Friedrich Sunda, Brian Rivera, Sergio Condriano, Jane Henninen, Ricardo Vladimiro, Craig Healy, Adam Castle, Vega Gidi, Olaf Alex, Jonathan Wiesel, David Diaz, Anian Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henrik Alenius, John Connors, Drs. Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, and Bo Weingard, my four producers, Isar Webber, Rosie, Jim Frank, and Lucas Stafiniak, and my executive producer, Michel Rogieski. Thank you for all.